It's midnight, the podcasting hour. PJ Frightful here again, only I don't have a lot of time to terrify you, or even mildly unnerve you, which is my usual softball approach, if we're being honest. See, Ryan really wants to jump right in where the last episode left off. If you recall, Ryan and Paul welcomed Dr. Ange to review the last half of the summoning story arc from Night Force. You really should listen to earlier episodes to find out what's gone on so far. But to make it easy... The KGB kidnapped Vanessa Van Helsing, a young woman with destructive psychic abilities. The enigmatic Baron Winters sends his agents, Jack Gold, a reporter who slept with Vanessa hours before her kidnapping, and Donovan Kane, a parapsychologist who experimented on her seconds before her kidnapping. They follow Vanessa and the Russian agents to a facility in frigid Siberia. The head of the KGB's psychic research division straps Vanessa to a machine that will amplify her powers. This, surprise, surprise, turns out to be a bad idea, as the girl's fragile psyche is tormented by 21 years of anger and fear. All of this negative energy manifests physically as a giant demonic spirit that begins to destroy the facility and slaughter everyone there. Jack and Donovan are escaping their detention cell when Vanessa's power targets them and attacks with giant snakes that incinerate anything they touch. Meanwhile, the police come to arrest Baron Winters, who escapes through a doorway in his mystical mansion into the safety of 14th century France. The cops follow him and arrive in a city beset by the Black Plague. And this brings us to the climactic chapter of The Summoning. Take it away. Night Force, number 7, cover date February 1983, on sale date November 18, 1982. Cover price, 60 cents, again. Cover art by Gene Colan and Bob Smith, again. The cover shows our three heroes, Jack, Donovan, and Vanessa, running away from the burning Science City. Looming above them all is the spectral demon entity that Vanessa has conjured. Thoughts on this one, Ange? This one really feels like it's a monster movie uh, movie poster, right? So unlike the last one of the montage, this is we clearly have a monster in the background. We clearly have our heroes running away from him. So I thought this one was a bit more cinematic. Um, I think Donovan has too many arms and legs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that art gaff, I think uh, overall... I like this one a lot. This one also feels, I think, the most like a comic book cover, just because there isn't that one color outside of the magenta of the ghost that seems to dominate everything. Mm-hmm. So it really just kind of played out a little bit more like, oh, this is, you know, like unexpected or House of Secrets. Um, there wasn't something specific about this one. Yeah, I mean, the lines around the bottom of the mountain where they're all running up, it, it all looks like it's the camera zooming towards them. Um, I feel the monster in the background is a sort of the flat color on it makes it look sort of 
in the same plane as them running up the hill rather than being behind Science City destroying it. Mm. So it kind of it doesn't have the scale and perspective that it ought to have if it's towering over the city. It's kind of looks like a I don't know, a, a plane detail that's in the same you know, as close to the camera as they are running up the hill, maybe. But um yeah, it's uh, I like I like the pink and the yellows. It's very you know, I would have been interested in this cover probably the most when I was 12 of all of them so far because it looks very, you know, sci-fi and, you know, bombastic. Yeah, I agree with you. This one would have jumped off of the spinner rack more than the other ones for me at that age. Yeah, for the less mature palette. Look, looking at the monster, I, I guess sort of we could say it's sort of Satan or it's Vanessa's concept of that. It seems so much more obvious when I look at this, but I, I've also kind of noticed it in previous ones. It reminds me of like a Japanese devil or Japanese demon uh-huh. entity thing. And I think something maybe something about like the, the teeth and also the hair and the shape of the eyes or something. There's something vaguely manga-ish or something. I just kind of... I don't know what it is, but when I look at that, I kind of think of like imagery of Japanese demon spirits or whatever that I would see on like an anime or cartoon or something. Yeah, I can totally yeah, see that. Like, yeah. yeah, this is the first time now that you mention it that I see that, like an oni demon. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's uh, the word I was. I you see. know, with the big shag hair around it. Com- yes. I can completely see that on this cover. Yeah. Shag hair? What? <laughs> <laughs> I know those two things don't usually go together. No. Um, so incongruous. <laughs> All right, moving on to the story, the climactic chapter of The Summoning. The Summoning, Part 7, Apocalypse. Written and edited by Marv Wolfman, with art by Gene Colan and Bob Smith, letters by Todd Klein, and colors by Michelle Wolfman. All of Vanessa's pain, every nightmare, every little indignity, an entire life of being studied and imprisoned, it's all brought to the surface. The power she always tried to contain is now exploding out of her in fiery waves of psychic energy. Every doctor and technician at Science City 5 is plucked up by psychic hands and hurled into the blinding abyss of Vanessa's mind to burn alive. Then the power lifts Vanessa out of the Psychotron machine and carries her off to find her next target, the man whose betrayal was the most intimate, Jack Gold. Presently, Jack is panicking outside the holding cells. Vanessa's uncontrollable fury, manifesting as snake-like tentacles erupting through the concrete floor, have already killed one KGB agent and sent the other one running for his life. Now the tentacles converge on the wounded Donovan Kane, who calls out to Jack for help. But Jack is too afraid to help Donovan. He just wants to run, until he sees more of the tentacles surrounding the other KGB guy. With danger in either direction, Jack hesitates. One of the tentacles wraps around Donovan's arm. It begins to burn through his jacket. Jack has never been a hero. What's more, he knows that his wife, his kids, even his mother never thought very much of him. So it's completely out of character for him to turn back and try and save Donovan. Hey, maybe he's actually gone mad at this point. He grabs Donovan and tries to pull him away from the horrible serpent, which coils its burning touch ever tighter around Donovan's arm. At last, Jack pulls, and the effort rips Donovan's arm off. Donovan screams. The burning tentacle cauterized the arm, preventing him from bleeding out, but the pain of the trauma causes Donovan to faint. Jack lifts Donovan over his shoulder and carries him outside, but the second KGB agent made it to one of the rocket sleds and turns it back towards Science City 5, not to give Jack and Donovan a ride to safety, of course, but to run them down. Jack dives out of the way, dropping Donovan to the snow. He manages to leap onto the back of the power sled. The Russian comes at him with a gun. 
They fight, and Jack kicks him over the side of the sled. Jack foots the pedal, igniting the booster jet that torches his would-be killer. Jack steers the sled back toward Donovan and starts to pull the man in as he wakes up. Then the sky over the crumbling pyramid is lit up by the fiery face of the devil, with Vanessa's voice. And she is not happy with the way these guys treated her back in issue two. Meanwhile, sort of, in the past, Detective Short and the uniformed police assigned to him witness the horror of the plague. All around them are dead bodies. And then the rats come. Some of the cops start to panic, but Merlin leaps out, scaring the rats. Baron Winters tells Short and the cops he will lead them out of this hellish place. They walk past throngs of sick people, begging for their help. Jack and Donovan speed away in the rocket sled as the earth around them heaves up with Vanessa's psychic rage. While the men argue about who's more responsible for this, her power lashes out, slamming into the sled. Jack and Donovan are thrown from the machine as it tumbles. Vanessa's body is held aloft by a giant fiery demon while her mind resides within the monster. It speaks with her words, and it is pissed at Jack for saying he loved her just so he could get her into bed. Jack pleads that he really did love her, but Vanessa screams that he is a liar. Her anger breaks through the crust of the earth, sending the whole of Science City 5 and all of its occupants into the pit. Jack tries to make a case for him and Donovan, telling Vanessa that when Donovan experimented on her, he really was trying to cure her. She scoffs at this, and burns one of Donovan's legs off. Man, I hope Jack never has to defend me in court. The merged demon Vanessa thing lifts Jack into the air and says Jack couldn't have loved her because no one could ever love her. But Jack begs her and tells her that he really, truly tried to love her. He explains how sad his life is, how he too never thought anyone would love him because his marriage was so god-awful. When he met Vanessa, he was captivated by her innocence, her purity. He wanted to be the good man she thought he was, but he just didn't know how. He was out of practice. Jack does love her, he screams, and begs Vanessa to believe him. For a moment there is silence, and then the demonic shape explodes. Jack and Vanessa drop, landing hard on the ice. The presence of her evil psychic energy is all gone, as is the entire science complex. Donovan, with one arm and one leg, crawls toward Jack and Vanessa. Jack crawls over to Vanessa, who is unconscious, and begins to hold her, as he must now care for her forever. They are only alive because Jack convinced Vanessa that he loves her. But that was bullshit. Once, he manipulated Vanessa into sleeping with him. Now, he manipulated her again, playing on her weakened self-esteem, her conviction that she could not be loved. He painted himself as the same type so that she could identify with him. He doesn't love her. Jack is just a big old liar. But this is a lie he must keep for the rest of his life, lest Vanessa's horrible power be unleashed again. Back at Wintersgate Manor, the Baron, the detective, and the cops are back in the house in present-day Georgetown. Short demands to know what happened, but Baron Winters plays dumb. Then a kindly old man named Whistle shows up claiming to be Baron Winters' attorney, and serves Detective Short with a restraining order. I guess that supersedes Short's order to arrest the Baron, so he angrily leaves with the other cops and Dr. Rabin, who showed up just to remind us that she doesn't like Baron Winters at all. After they leave, Whistle reveals that the restraining order is a forgery, and asks Winters what they'll do when Detective Short realizes that. Baron Winters doesn't have an answer, but I have a feeling we'll find out next issue. Okay, thoughts on number seven, and my big question after reading this... Is the world saved by the power of love or the power of lies? Hmm. Hmm. 
beat it both. Also, sub-question, is this a corny resolution or does it work? It it would be corny, except there's some pretty... Like, Donovan pays a lot of prices in this comic. He does. It literally costs him an arm and a leg. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that... I mean, you flip through this comic, and uh, the thing that comes to mind is Coldplay's Yellow song. Because it was all yellow. <laughs> there's a lot of yellow demon energy all throughout the as things fall apart and turn down. It's interesting the snakes are turning into more sci-fi looking tentacles at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you one of the reasons why I wanted to be on this show is that this one really freaked me out as a kid, mostly because I think of this sort of psychological ending to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, if you told me that evil demon is defeated because like someone says I love you, that would be corny. But Gold comes right out and says he's lying to her. And I'll point out to uh, page 21, he must spend a lifetime with this woman he does not care about. He does not love her. Yet there is that thing deep inside Vanessa, that darkness that may again rise forth if she ever learned the truth. And Jack Gold cries, the horror is all his. And as a kid, you know, of course, I I led a very sheltered life with a very stable family. And I just assumed like every married couple completely loves each other. And so the fact that he basically has to keep her happy no matter what throughout life so that she doesn't, you know, manifest this thing again and destroy the world just like blew my mind. Like, oh, I feel so bad for him. You know, he can't get into an argument, right? Like, (laughs) honey, empty the dishwasher. Okay, Vanessa, right? Oh, we're going to my mother's house for dinner. Okay, Vanessa, right? So, um, and so that as a kid, I just, that was, um, it was such, it was like an adult ending for something that my 12 year old mind was just blown. Yeah. Um, and so I can remember when you first announced this, I was like, oh, I got to come on to talk about the ending of this because it really struck me as a kid that that guy, he's the victim in the very end because he's stuck. And then even though there's a line in issue eight when we get there, that makes him even more a victim. Right. So. Yeah, the price that he pays. I mean, when we think about who Jack is throughout this story, he, he comes from a broken marriage. His job is falling apart. He's borderline alcoholic. And early on in the story, he gets a chance to sleep with a hot mess 20-year-old. <laughs> okay. At, at his point in life, that's pretty tempting. I get it. Okay. And he has to suffer for that. Like, he, he, he has to own that, that mistake. And it's, yeah, the, the very adult consequences. I mean, you think of, like, uh, an action like that, like, even if you were mere, like, like an infidelity or something, like, that, but something that he has to live with forever and has to keep a secret and has to lie about it forever. And to say nothing like his life will, will end, but, like, could cause, like, very real-world, like, hell-on-earth consequences. Yeah, it's... He is the victim, essentially, of his one action in back in issue two or something, when he sleeps with her. That is going to rewrite the rest of his life in this very dark way. <laughs> Who has it worse, Jack or Donovan? <laughs> So we'll we'll get more of this in the next issue. Donovan, as much as I liked Donovan, and I see, like, I mean, we got so many people saying Donovan is a horrible character. He's torturing this girl just for research purposes. He's really no better than the the Russian scientists here. Um, We see that Donovan, by the end of this, sort of 
despite the the physical things, he's been shot. He had one of his arms burned off, one of his legs burned off. Like these are horrifying things. But we see that he survives and kind of comes out with a new recognition, a new realization that he was wrong, that he learned his lesson, that his wife's death was really the the result of his hubris and his greed and things like that. And I get it. That's an okay. But I think I kind of think Donovan should have died in this chapter, not just because physically the things he goes through, and we're not even counting the fact that he's in this rocket sled that crashes. Like he really should have died. He should have bled out, or he should have just like had a broken neck or something. He should have died in this chapter. But I also think that would have additionally raised the stakes and made it the danger more real for Jack and Vanessa. Like if Jack realized that he is all alone. That this is the, the only thing. Like he will, he will be dead, and he doesn't want to die. But he will be dead if he doesn't make, if he doesn't lie and convince her that yes, he he absolutely he fell in love with her because of her her innocence and her sweetness. He has to sell that lie, or he'll be dead because everybody else is dead. The nine hundred people who work at this place are all dead. So. Yeah, I mean, I, Donovan will see kind of like learns a lesson from this experience and maybe comes out physically mauled, but emotionally at a better place. But I kind of think he should have died. Mm-hmm. I did actually think that uh, in publication terms, he is the first arm fall off boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they they make a point to say that these snakes uh, like cauterize the wounds as mm-hmm. they cut through. So they at least explain why he doesn't bleed out. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why he may have been kept alive is to, you know, reinforce that if you're an agent for Baron Winter, you're going to come out worse at the end. Um, <laughs> so you shouldn't, uh, you know, work with him unless you're really compelled to. He's kind of like an early Constantine in that way, I would say. Mm. You know, he manipulates these people to do things for him. They get destroyed and he remains relatively, you know, unharmed. Yeah. Hmm. I just have to say, one of my favorite pages in this um, is page three, um, which I actually put on Twitter. Uh, The poor doctors, right? Uh, (laughs) How many doctors had examined her, probed her, embarrassed her, condemned her to that little dark hole? How many times had she pleaded with them to be sent home? How many times ignored? The doctors were the first to inflict the pain. They are the first to be embraced with ripe, raw passions. They had been the first to find her on that dimly remembered day standing over her parents' bodies, Split open like gaming fowl. Nice, nice touch. Yeah. Ooh. They took her away, kept her away, locked her away. Yes, they are to be the first, the doctors. And then you just <laughs> see the doctors getting, you know, destroyed by these things. <laughs> it was like, man, I'm going <laughs> to make sure I have a good bedside manner. You know? <laughs> Is this when you decided to be a doctor? Just <laughs> Heal thyself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I like that moment. I like the poetry of that moment. It was actually pretty cool. Um, uh, in terms of the art, the, there are a few different contrast things. I, again, as much as the, the Baron Winters part hasn't really intrigued me, I love the moments when we go to, what is it, like 15th century France or something during the Black Death with the plague and everything, because I really like how Colin draws the bodies in this death cart. They're so distorted and so mutilated, like with skin slippage and decay, that they just look gruesome. And it it becomes a sort of zombie outbreak little chapter because these people are just swarming these cops who have no idea what they're doing. Uh, I just I thought that the horror in this part of the story was was really nice and played out. And then just sort of quickly ended, resolved a little bit too quickly. Um, but on the other hand. 
I love Colin's artwork at this time because of how atmospheric and moody it is. I I don't want to say he his storytelling and his conveyance of action scenes was bad because after the series he would go on to do Wonder Woman and I thought it was fine there. But like the scene on page eight when Jack is fighting the other KGB guy on the rocket sled, uh, or page seven actually before that, like the when the rocket sled is chasing him. I don't know if that action scene was done really well. It was a little bit rushed and confusing. Um, and even the moment, the page before that, when he when he's pulling Donovan out of the snake's tendrils and it like rips his arm off, some of these beats I thought were a little bit confusing if you're just relying on the art to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, I mean, Jack is, he wants to leave Donovan because he wants to get away. Then he realizes he can't get away and then he chooses to help Donovan um, but as far as the layout of the room and how they escape, it's not very clear, you know, which way is out for that. You know, if he, yeah. if he frees Donovan, how do they get away? Cause it looks like the tendrils are all, all over the place or the snakes are behind them and in front of them. And yeah. yeah. So yeah, I see what you're saying. It does get a little bit, uh, the geography of these events gets a little bit confusing. Yes. Sometimes you can say that panels like that help convey how frenetic everything is, right? You know, it's confusing and fast and, and, you know, you're having a hard time following it. But it almost feels like action movies now where the director does too many cuts so that you can't see the actual fight. You just see images and then have to sort of piece it together. So I agree what you're saying. But as a kid, I would have I would have gone mad for that bit where the guy falls into the rocket jet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, when he pulls on the arm and then the arm comes off and there's just this like bloody trail. I mean, as a kid, I was like, that's the best thing since sliced bread, right? (laughs) (laughs) It feels so extreme and so taboo, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, you read this and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be reading this. Oh, look, hope- his leg gets burned off, too. Maybe I really shouldn't be reading this. And, <laughs> I hope my mother boy, doesn't see this. The yeah, last-, last issue, you know, last issue, Vanessa was moist. I really, really, really <laughs> shouldn't be reading this, right? <laughs> the leg thing being burned off was just like, holy crap, man. What are you doing to this this poor guy? He's already been shot. He had to be carried into the city. Now that he's got to drag him out after his arm is pulled off. And it's just like, she's like, where do you think you're going? Like, I kind of wanted her to just like start like with these like fiery like hands, just start picking little bits and pieces off of Kane like one by one. And this like really over the top ostentatious death scene. It's just, oh man, it's like he's got an extra arm. We can we can go for all, all the arms, all the, all the legs, and, like start taking off ears. Was, just, I was like, why did you have to take that other leg off? He can't walk anyway. <laughs> you would have been yeah. lighter to carry after all this, though. <laughs> it's, My uh, diet's working really well. I've lost. <laughs> yeah, he has to use crutches in the next issue, and it's like at least he must have something left of that arm that he can at least rest it underneath. But um, yeah, there's you know less than more of him, unfortunately. Mm. You know, to, to touch on the art again and the use of Serprint, I did like on page 18, you can kind of see Vanessa's face manifesting above this demon's face. Like, you know, just to remind you that this really is all her and not some, you know, supernatural being that has possessed her. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is just so much yellow and red that you could just gloss by that and not see it if you weren't looking for it. So 
I do wonder if maybe they overdid it. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that. Like, if it was to remind that this was our, if if it was a, a sense that her identity is merging with this demon thing that she's that she thinks she's conjured, or that she, or if her identity is kind of splitting or or kind of like taking. Asserting itself over this dark power or something, uh, because it's more about her emotions at this point and her experience and the pain that she has suffered, and that's what is manifesting. That's what is is taking its revenge out on this on these people. It's certainly directed. I mean, it seems that uh, I mean Vanessa seems very naive in her you know regular self, but I guess all her fears and suspicions you know are manifest as you know this demonic energy the you know certainly her demon forms aren't aren't naive like they know that she's been used and abused and mm. you know they don't trust anyone yeah when we, when we get to the the final moment of this episode um i said the thing with the black plague just kind of ends they just they port out of there they're back in winter's gate with the cops uh and the baron and all of a sudden this deus, this deus ex machina lawyer type guy just shows up hands them a restraining order and the cops have to leave and then dr raven shows up and threatens them again that if vanessa isn't back she'll she'll make sure that he's in jail like i kind of feel like we've seen this scene before like this whole thing didn't accomplish anything it just like set them back to where they were a couple issues ago yeah, and it, it's weirdly paced because, I mean, you'd, you'd really want to finish the arc at the end of this issue. And mm-hmm. they don't, you know, because of all these diversions with um, France yeah. and police and all that, they don't seem to have time to do it. And it's like Dr. Raven's waiting outside in a car and she's, oh, I've had enough. I'm going back in to yell at him. <laughs> <laughs> and she does yeah. that and then she goes back to her car just to wait again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's so much going on with the other storyline that, again, this these last pages just sort of seem like an afterthought. Yeah. So, you know, it, maybe it's that they wanted this arc to carry into the next issue to make sure that people bought the next issue, because um, then that would start up a next storyline that maybe you'd stay hooked. Um, mm-hmm. But it didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I dropped the book at eight. <laughs> All right, well, then let's actually move on to that, uh, folks. We are going to move on to the final part of the summoning story arc. Now, way back, I think in issue one in Marv Wolfman's notes, or it might have been in the interview in Amazing Heroes that we talked about. Anyway, Wolfman said, as we mentioned, that the opening story arc was going to be seven issues long. Clearly, the story grew bigger than he expected, but it wasn't quite big enough to fill out an entire extra issue with filler. So Night Force number eight is kind of a strange book. The first half is the epilogue to the summoning, and the second half of the issue begins an all-new story arc that continues into issues 9 and 10. We are not going to talk about the second part today. That'll be on the next Night Force episode. For now, we are just reviewing the first 11 pages of Night Force 8, which was cover dated March 1983, on sale date December 23rd, 1982. Again, cover price 60 cents. Again, cover art by Gene Colan and Bob Smith. The cover shows a man with a gun looking at two skeletons lying prone on a set of stairs. At the top of the stairs lurks some kind of alien or Lovecraftian monster with tentacles. We don't know who this guy is or what this monster is, and we're not really going to find that out until we cover the next episode. But just at a glance, what do you guys think of this cover? Uh, art-wise, it rocks. Like, yeah. I think the monster at the top of the stairs, the skeletons, the guy at the bottom of the stairs, um, it's a fantastic drawing. It's creepy as anything. Um, the only thing I think that lets it down is a bit of the colouring and the details. I mean, the guy has really bright orange sneakers for some reason. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but that's yeah. I mean, it could be you know just improved by some more I don't know color work. I, I, I don't have the terminology to describe what I want from it, but I think there's something lacking. Just in the, in I think color. it's actually it, it's strange because the upstairs in the doorway is lit up brighter around the monster. And that seems to run yeah. kind of counterintuitive. Like, you would think that downstairs where the guy is, that would be lit, and up wherever the monster is, that would be in shadows. That would be in dark to kind of obscure, so we don't really know what we're looking at. But we get kind of the reverse mm. of that. But it's, I mean, it really highlights Colin's gift of doing um, sort of ambiguous monsters. You know, mm-hmm. you can see everything he's drawn, but you can't really wrap your head around it all. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the dark green that dominates sort of the um, left side of this forces your eyes up the stairs almost, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that the dark green half does a good job of highlighting the other half, like your eyes are really drawn to where the action is. I agree, those are some weird sneakers, and they look like his feet are too big for his body. So (laughs) when you stare at it too long, you see some of the faults. But this could easily have been a cover of any of the horror anthology books, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this this could have House of Secrets at the top, and it would say the thing that lived up the stairs and a word balloon at the bottom, and you'd be like, hooray. So I think that maybe they were trying to, you know, just say, anybody can pick this up and enjoy And I agree that it's, I don't want to call it Lovecraftian, but all of the tentacles and the vagueness of the whole thing does kind of feel a bit like, you know, mini Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So um, I like that. It's not a zombie, right? It's something other. It also looks like it's um, splashing green paint around a bit. (laughs) (laughs) It was just painting the wall when it got interrupted. Don't come up here. I'm, I'm, re, I'm repainting the walls. These two people came up here and they got what was coming to them. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, I, I mean, for what you said, Ange, the reason like this looks like it could be on any of those old horror anthology covers, uh, it, it's pretty close with the cover to issue four, which was the bright, hot, neon pink cover, but it had the guy in the shadow with the snakes coming out of his face. Like, this is probably my favorite cover that we've seen so far. Now, it feels the least like a Night Force cover, because we don't see the Baron, we don't see the characters that we have come to know so far. This is a completely different setting, so is that an indictment of the comic and the premise, or what? But I don't know. I I just, I like this cover a lot. I hmm. think, it, I mean, at this point, I would be keen to see what happened with the next arc and a, a you know, change of cast. Yeah. Because we have spent, you know, uh, seven issues with the, the same people and yeah. tracking Vanessa around the world. So I would, I'd be up for a change of pace at this point just to see, okay, show me something different with someone else. Well, hold that thought until the next Night Force episode, Paul. No. <laughs> because first we have to fig- <laughs> we we still have eleven more pages to find out what is going on with Jack and Vanessa and the Baron. So, hold on to that as we go through it. The Summoning Epilogue, written and edited by Marv Wolfman, art by Colin and Smith, letters by Todd Klein, colors Michelle Wolfman. Detective Elliot Short, upon reviewing the restraining order, discovers that it's a forgery. He requests a court order for an extensive search of Baron Winter's mansion so that he can go wreck up the place in revenge for this humiliating waste of time. At the stated Winter's Gate, Baron Winters nervously waits for word on the operatives of his night force. He knows they succeeded because the world didn't end, but beyond that, he's in the dark. He tells Merlin to fetch Mr. Whistle for a risky idea. Across town, Jack Gold, Vanessa Van Helsing, and Donovan Kane share a taxi from the airport to Donovan's house. 
Jack asks Donovan if he wants to go straight to Winter's Gate to confront the Baron. After all, this case literally cost Donovan an arm and a leg, but all Donovan wants to do is go home and see his son. When the cab pulls over, Donovan is met by his son, Larry, who has been staying with neighbors since his mother died and Donovan left the country. Larry is scared by the sight of his physically maimed father, but Donovan pulls the boy close and confides that he's more emotionally whole than ever before. He is no longer filled with the need for vengeance, nor is he obsessed with his work for the government. All Donovan wants to do now is be a father to his son. Jack Gold is dismayed by Donovan's happy ending, perhaps because he won't get one of his own. Vanessa is wholly in love with him, and Jack must keep up the pretense that he loves her too, or else she may unleash the horrors of her psychic rage on the world again. As they hold each other on the street, a pair of police cars race by with sirens blaring. Vanessa senses that the cops are heading for Winter's Gate. When Detective Short arrives at the mansion, Dr. Rabin and Mr. Whistle are already there. Whistle admits to forging the restraining order, claiming Baron Winters had no knowledge of the fraud. At that point, Jack and Vanessa arrive. Jack tells Baron Winters that Donovan is alive too, although not in the best shape. Vanessa tells him that she and Jack are getting married. With nothing on Winters, Detective Short arrests Whistle for forging documents and leaves in disgust, vowing to keep an eye on the Baron. He puts Whistle in the back of a squad car, and then turns to ask Vanessa to come to the police station the next day to make a full statement. When he looks back, mere seconds later, the squad car is empty and Whistle is gone. Inside the manor, Dr. Rabin vents her frustration at the Baron. She devotes her life to treating patients medically, while he uses unorthodox, potentially mystical methods. In this case, however, his methods have worked. He says Vanessa is completely cured of her psychic disturbances, though he will never share that information with Jack. Before Rabin leaves, Baron Winters reminds her that she owes him $10,000, his fee for treating Vanessa. After Raven leaves, Whistle steps out of hiding. Baron Winters thanks the man for proving yet again what an impeccable aide he has always been. Whistle brushes off the compliment, saying he owed the Baron, and it was fun getting arrested 200 years after his death. With that, they open the door to Winters Gate's courtyard and step out onto a thoroughfare in colonial America. The End Holy shit, Baron Winters is not telling Jack that Vanessa is cured of her psychic energy. How do we feel about this? <laughs> Winters is <Yeah>. such a dick. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, like I said, like last issue, the realization that he said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to live a life of a lie mm-hmm. to keep her happy, like blew me away as a kid, right? And then I read this issue and he's like, hey, he doesn't really have to. I was like, oh, like mind doubly exploded. It's just so awful that he would do that. Um, And there's no real reason unless he cares so much about Vanessa that he just wants her to have a doting husband. But you would think that he would want her to have real love as opposed to fake. So it's just horrible all the way around. As a kid, I just thought it was horrible. (laughs) To me, I mean, it felt... It felt uh, somewhat appropriate in that it it still comes back to Jack's original sin in terms of the story arc that we have seen when he takes this very vulnerable girl who has been in an institution for the most of her life. She's out for like 20 minutes and he sleeps with her. And we we called him on his his character defects in that moment, and now it's like, yeah, now you got to deal with the consequences of that, dude. And is this a harsh punishment? Yes, it is. But 
dude, you were wrong. You were really, really wrong and creepy when you slept with her. So it's kind of like Winters has got. I mean, his outcome was that you know the mission was accomplished, Vanessa was rescued, and he doesn't care what happens after that. You know, he's he's got what he wanted. So you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got other things. Whistle, this little uh, character that we find out actually comes from either colonial America or possibly London or something. He's like two hundred years ago. At first, when they put him in the back of the police car, and then when he disappears. I thought it was actually going to be revealed that he was Merlin, and that Merlin is a changeling that can take on human form. And, of course, that that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, the Baron says, Merlin, get Mr. Whistle for me. That is a scene I want to see. I mean, how did Merlin do that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Does, like, this guy just living in, like, you know, Colonial Williamsburg or something just, like, look up one day, there's a cheetah. He's like, oh, sorry, honey, (laughs) the Baron needs me. Oh dear. I mean, there's there's another comic here, The Secret Life of Merlin, that would be very interesting. (laughs) Need to get to that one someday. Um, other thoughts about the finale? Like we we kind of teased before, we see that Donovan Kane is broken physically. Uh, he's missing an arm and a leg. He's got to be in this wheelchair. But emotionally, spiritually, he might be at a better place where he has kind of this uh, this catharsis about his his involvement in these horrible events and certainly the death of his wife. And he he tries to reach out to his son. Is this a good? Yeah, said, yeah, is this a good ending for him at least? Does he does he deserve this ending? Okay, he seems like the ha- happiest person in this comic at the mm-hmm. end of this because he, you know, he has realised of all he's lost so much, but he still has his son, and he's going to you know treasure his son and you know um, count his blessings that he still has him. So and he still has his life. So that that's how I took it to be. Like he certainly seems uh, to come off very positively compared to <laughs> some other people. In- <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of sad that that's true, right? That he's suffered so much, and he's he's the one that's best off. You know, there's that whole panel where he's hugging his kid and saying, I'm dedicating my life to being with you now and nothing else. And then, of course, Jack has to ruin it the next panel and says, oh, these happy endings make me want to puke. <laughs> um, so you really don't, you know, the hope would be that, oh, everybody's going to have some sort of redemption course here, right? That everybody's going to look back at their troubled past and, you know, come out the other side. But I don't think that's true of Jack. And he realizes that she still has, like, some psychic vibrations, that she can sense things. So he's like, boy, I really have to sell it. Because she can tell now, right? Uh, you know, if, if things aren't right. So I just feel for him. I mean, th- look at uh, the last panel on page seven. You know, Vanessa's just beaming with this big smile. Jack and I are getting married. Everything is perfect. And he's frowning. And he just says, yeah, yeah, period. Perfect, period, right? So he's just, he, he is not happy about his life. And maybe that's, you know, appropriate. It's like George Costanza when he, you know, is about to get married. <laughs> yeah, maybe Jack will give her toxic glue. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just buy some really cheap envelopes and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking, I was like, you know, that for him, that's probably his best case scenario is just his natural character faults shine through. And eventually she'll realize she'll just kind of adapt to a normal life and get enough self-esteem that she realizes this guy's an asshole. I don't want to spend my life with him. And just just through the natural course of attrition, she'll dump him, but not like hate him so much that she wants to blow up the world. I think that's kind of the best case scenario for him. Yeah. Oh dear. I mean, it's part of. I mean, there's a horrible part of me that just enjoys imagining the next few years of his life. <laughs> 
Because, you know, <laughs> she's so much younger than him and they would have so little in common. Right. right. And he would have to work to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Also, you think about, like, just, like, what, like, the, their whole experience, like, what fresh nightmares does it have? Like, when, you like, she kisses him or whatever when she wants to get, like, romantic or affectionate when she wants to have sex or something. Does he just, like, close his eyes and imagine, like, all these fire and snakes and people burning to death and everything? Like, <laughs> he's just, like, it's hard to get in the mood, honey. It's, like, I've seen what you can do. And it's, I don't know. Um, overall, this whole story, the summoning seven and a half chapters, well, I mean, if you count the preview, which kind of se- which introduced a lot of these characters, it's pretty close to eight full issues. Um, I really like this storyline. It's not without its problems. Uh, there are certainly a few art issues. There are certain character beats. Some of the subplots aren't always great, but for being a story that is just so different than anything else DC would normally be publishing. Like, you think of from the big two in the superhero mainstream, and I mean, in I know, you know, 30 years ago, they, they might have been taking more chances, but this feels like such a novelistic approach, and I mean that both in terms of being fresh and different, and also being like, this feels like a novel. Like, I, I swear, like, I felt like I was reading a Stephen King book from the 80s or a Dean Koontz novel or something like that. It had a lot of these sci-fi horror elements. And I think, you know, like, if this had been approached as a graphic novel today instead of a serialized thing, like, I think this might have been really, really special. Like, if they had just gone for, like, a 160-page, you know, graphic novel or something... Um, it does very much seem written for the trade, which uh, mm-hmm. was not a concept at all back no. then. Yeah, thirty-five years ago, of course not. No, like it was, and I think I think probably ahead of its time because I think that probably played a big factor on why the series didn't last. But yeah, you think of like how how revolutionary that was. But today, it's like yeah, the first story arc is eight issues. That's kind of what we're used to now. Yeah, and I think that there is some sort of draw to the fact that. You might get tired of characters, but know that six issues later, there's a whole brand new cast that's going to come in, maybe with a whole new story. So, Mm -hmm. you know, with Winters as being sort of like the hub that everything goes around, that nowadays, I wonder, would it be interesting to try to do that again? Although I guess people aren't keen on necessarily anthology or rotating cast type stuff, but... I wish I would have supported it more, you know, in the early 80s. Because mm-hmm. as I reread this, I was like, boy, it's um, uh, it's a little bit, I wouldn't want to say revolutionary, but it's pretty progressive for its time. Sure, yeah. Well, they do say in the letters page that if one more person had bought it, it would have kept going. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it's it. It's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like the code today where you got uh, Dr. Rabin comes back in from her car (laughs) for one more chat with the Baron. And then we get it revealed. I didn't remember this being anywhere in the story earlier that she owes him $10,000 for curing Vanessa. And he accepts the check and says, I would have done it for nothing, but it's against my religion (laughs) to turn down money. So thank you very much. He is such a dick. (laughs) It is a really weird exchange that like we kind of didn't need this, like how he first got involved with Vanessa and their animosity. But yeah, the fact after all of this, how much she hates him, how many times she's threatened to get the cops on him, she has to pay him for his services. And he's like, I would have done it for free, but no, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to let you like skip out on this. So it's rough. Yeah. 
that scene is even a little bit weird because they talk about, if you look, it's like the bookcases are all mm-hmm. warped and the chandelier is moving on its own. And it says, like, you know, the room seems to take on the feel that Baron is talking about. And does she see any of that? Um, because she seems, you know, fine. But I think that most of us would be like, what the hell's going on here? So maybe she is a little bit more aware of who he is since she's not surprised. But I thought that that was just an odd thing to throw in at the end. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like it would be set up for like a revelation of his power. Because that's that's happened before when he was talking to the detective, when the room sort of went a little bit topsy-turvy. But that's just before like something physically changes and he kind of like exerts some power over it and it doesn't seem to be happening here so maybe that's something to do with how whistle got out of the car that's i don't know but uh, it seems like the house reacts to uh, the baron's emotions so in yeah. the first instance he was sort of being threatened and attacked and that's when the room went all screwy and here yeah. he's kind of uh, very pleased with himself so maybe that's what's affecting things yeah uh, Paul, what overall, what were your big picture thoughts on the summoning story arc? Uh, it's very – it is ahead of its time. I mean, I the comics I read from back then were few and far between, but I don't remember anything sort of this ambitious. Um, you know, it's certainly – yeah, it's a really good, strong arc, and it you know holds up pretty well after all this time, and, you know, story-wise and art-wise. I mean, I make fun of it a little bit, but I do that with everything, so <laughs> – that's part of the nature of this podcasting thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, Ange, I mean, you mentioned that you wish you had stuck with it or supported it a little bit more. Final thoughts on the summoning story arc? You know, I think that you're reading it, or for me, like really as I was rereading it um, uh, with this podcast and, and for being on this episode, um, yeah, I, I was reading it and then thinking about what I thought about it back then. And so as a kid, I'm reading it, and it's like, oh, there's going to be a demon, there's going to be a giant monster, they're going to defeat the monster, everything's going to be okay. And so as a kid, that psychological ending is the thing that really stuck with me and struck me. And I would say the same is true today, that Winters puts these people out on a mission, they come back horribly damaged, but he's accomplished his goal, and it's either physical or psychological, but nobody is getting out of this in a better situation, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's really interesting. And I do think that, again, the mix of, you know, science and magic uh, was also uh, very intriguing to me back then, that, you know hey, let's try to harness evil as an energy source is sort of a, a weird thing to think of and and I think was sort of uh, novel back then. And of course, as a 12-year-old, if you said, hey, there's going to be um, demonic orgies and moist young girls and dismemberment, <laughs> right? I would be like, what more could I want for in a comic, right? So, um, uh, so I do think that uh, I wonder if this was introduced today in a very similar way, knowing the skewed age of comic book readers now, if it might not have been a little bit more successful. Mm. I'd like to imagine the world where evil did become a power source. I think we'd have a surplus right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very true, very true, and probably uh, the the best point to end this on. Um, I really dug this story arc. Folks, I mentioned it on a previous episode. The entire Night Force series, 14 issues plus the preview, it has been solicited to be collected in a trade that is due out around Halloween. I hope that still ends up happening. It might depend on pre-order, so if you want to hear more about this, if you want to read the story yourself, go out to Amazon or some other, your local comic store, try and pre-order the Night Force 
Force collection. Uh, it's a fun story. I think you'll enjoy reading this. Uh, and you can go back and listen to our podcast to see if you share our thoughts on it. Moving forward from here, um, only a few more issues and two different story arcs. Like I said, the next time we will cover the Beast story from the second half of Night Force issue 8, as well as 9 and 10. And then the final story that wraps up the series 11 through 14 is an origin story, sort of, of Baron Winters. And we'll get to that on on a later time. But uh, for now... Dr. Ainge, I want to thank you very much for joining Paul and I on this episode. It was great to get uh, another perspective and some more thoughts on this series. Thank you very much again. Where can people find you if they want to look for you on social media or the blogosphere? Uh, I'm most active social media-wise on Twitter at Dr. Ange 70 and I contribute to two blogs, my own Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary, and um, I post every Friday on the Legion of Superbloggers, and uh, when this comes out, I probably will have just started reviewing the back end of the newsstand Levitz Giffen run. All right. Thank you very much again. Folks, we're going to take another promo break, and after that, Paul and I will get through your listener feedback from Episodes 9 and 10 when we reviewed Issues 1 through 4 of this series. Don't go away. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts, thrill to the imagination, bask in the brilliance, experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. Okay, folks, these are the comments we received for Episode 9 on Fire & Water website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Rob Kelly, who said, Paul's silky, smooth voice works perfectly when covering Night Force. Paul, did you know that you have a silky, smooth voice? Uh, I'm very unaware of my voice. I mean, I know that I don't have an accent, and everyone else in the world has an accent, so that's (laughs) one of the things I know. But, yeah, uh, I'm surprised I sound silky smooth. (laughs) Uh, Rob says, I remember buying issue four of this series when I was on vacation with my family, partly because I needed more comics to read than usual, plus the cover was so striking. I've tried to get into the series, but have never been able to crack it. Maybe listening to these commentaries will help if I try again. In any case, retro props to DC for trying something other than superheroes in 1982. Yeah, that was kind of what what we were saying. Yeah. Hope you stuck with it. <laughs> Dr. Ange, who you just heard a few minutes ago, said uh, he called the series a sort of delightful mashup of Mission Impossible, The Exorcist, and All of the President's Men, mixing journalism, demons, and political intrigue. Weird brew to be sure. I, I, like, I like that combination. Uh, Ange then said, as a kid, this was akin to watching an R-rated movie while your parents were out. Satanic rituals, naked women, and violence? Check, check, check. 
Yeah, that, that, that sounds a lot like what he was uh, mentioning in this one. Like, at least they didn't have moist in the first couple issues of the series. <laughs> it stuck with him, didn't it? It certainly did. Hey, if I'd been reading these when I was a kid, I think the, the sexuality and the, those tones would have probably had a big influence on me too. So, uh, Chris Franklin from the Supermates and Batman Nightcast said, I passed on this book in the 80s because A, no superheroes, and B, I really didn't like Gene Colan's work. I used to fuss when I got an issue of Batman or Detective that was drawn by him instead of Don Newton. Nowadays, I see his genius and his unique style. Like Bernie Wrightson, no one drew comics like Gene Colan. I've since fallen in love with his and Wolfman's Tomb of Dracula, so I'm looking forward to following you and Paul on this short journey. Sounds pretty bold for a DC book in the early 80s. This definitely seems to be in the same vein as the pre-Vertigo books that were soon to emerge. Yeah, yeah I wonder- so many of the so many of the fire and water audience seem to be forty something, which mm-hmm. is probably this was quite a challenging read for them when it first came out. So, you know, particularly if you're into superheroes, so yeah, I mean, I didn't pick it up at the time; I wasn't reading comics at the time. But I don't know if I would have, you know, in amongst the other, you know, lurid covers on the and you know, the superhero thrills. But uh, certainly, when I was, you know, in a vertigo sort of frame of mind, when I was a bit older, this would have this would have worked for me. Yeah, I was thinking like even if this had come out. Not even 10 years later, like if this had just been like very like late 80s, maybe early 90s, I mean, maybe I mean 10 years later would have been 92. Like if this had had the Vertigo imprint, I wonder if it would have been stronger, if it would have had the, the lasting power. But mm. Chris also talked a little bit about Bernie Wrightson, who had just passed away when I released episode nine. Chris said, I can't think of a single greater horror artist in all of comics history. The EC guys were great, as was Colin, Mike Plug, etc., but Wrightson was king of horror in comics. I'm going to have to pick up that creep show one shot now that it's due back out soon. Love that movie, and to have Wrightson adapt it, perfect. Yeah, I mean, Wrightson was amazing. The stuff he can draw is, you know, it's just amazing that can, he can visualize that when no one else could imagine it. It's it's so, you know, the detail and just the the horror strength of it. It's so potent. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's, like I've said, I was glad that I met him when I got the chance. But Chuck Coletta said, I also passed on this one back in the 1980s for the same reasons Chris mentioned above. Thanks for highlighting some comics I neglected as a wayward youth. Uh, and then Chuck also posted the video of the House of Mystery showing up in the Justice League action animated show, uh, which looked really, really cool. Thank you, Chuck, for posting that one. Have you ever seen Justice League action? Um, I've got a few apps. I've uh, watched about four or five so far. It's, it's just come onto Australian TV recently, so um, I'd put it below Batman Brave and the Bold, but mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly better than many other cartoons that aren't um, superhero stuff. Yeah. I have never seen a full episode, and even though they're short episodes, I've never seen a full one. I've seen a bunch of clips, uh, and it looks fun. It looks cute. Uh, very kid-friendly, kind of adorable. Uh, I like the Easter eggs and how deep their benches, like going into things like the House of Mystery, for instance, and Space Cabbie. Um, really crazy things. It looks fun. Like At some point, I hope that I can like kind of get into it and really do a deep dive of it. But uh, yeah, we'll see. There's a fair bit of Zatanna in it. Yeah, I, actually, that's one of the reasons I, everybody keeps saying, dude, have you seen the latest Justice League action Zatanna? They keep showing me that. I was like, I haven't seen it, but it sounds cool. I'm excited. <laughs> Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, thanks for another spooktastic episode. 
the big question for me is, who is the builder of mystical houses in the DC universe? Who first wondered about the House of Mystery? Who knew the secrets of Haunted House? Who didn't include a light switch in the dark mansion of Forbidden Love? And why did Wintersgate Manor open up onto a parallel Earth where the Eiffel Tower went up about a century before anyone else's erection? <laughs> yeah, a lot of crazy gra- gra- architectural students in this world, so... Uh, Martin said, as you say, at least Jack felt bad about taking advantage of Vanessa. Maybe Terry Long will show up and congratulate him. Uh, It's a Marv Wolfman thing. I was going going to say, what do those two characters have in common? Both Wolfman creations. Interesting. (laughs) Um, Donovan Kane is probably the worst character in here, Martin says. Using a disturbed person to harness the power of evil, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, and then he asks, Ryan, did you ever see Colin's pair of Nathaniel Dusk miniseries with Don McGregor, in which his art is seen uninked? Gorgeous stuff. I have not seen the Nathaniel Dusk series. Um, I like the combination. I like Gene Colin's as an artist. I like Don McGregor as a writer. I've, I think I've only read his Black Panther stuff, but I really, really dug it. So I may have to check out the, the Nathaniel Dusk stuff. Never seen it myself. Yeah. I mean, I've I've seen it, but I never mm-hmm. picked it up. Yeah, I might it have just... to. So. <laughs> uh, oh, here's, here's the big one. Here's the comment we were waiting so long for. We left. Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network said, Love you guys. Want to support the show? I am 100% exhausted of fucks to give for Night Force. By the time Tomb of Dracula wrapped up, I was done with the Wolfman colon team, and this book felt very much like two of a kind to Tomb of Dracula's Greece. I read the Titans preview, and I think one issue of the main series, which was a perennial in the quarter bins of my youth. It bored the shit out of me. Gene Colan was one of the first comic artists that I was exposed to extensively, and I enjoy him on the right project with a good inker, but he was never a favorite, and I don't get the warm and fuzzies over his work. It doesn't help that I had a weird-slash-negative experience during a San Diego Comic-Con panel with him and Don McGregor. I am incapable of bringing myself to care about these characters, and Baron Winters always felt like the lamest of DC's many, many mystic characters. Only Baron Winters is capable of making me say, or I could read Dan Spiegel on Mr. E, and that not be uttered like a curse. All right, fellows, take care. I'll see you when Swamp Thing or the Spectre or Dead Man roll back into town. (sighs) So, yeah. Burn, burn, burn. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. <laughs> Do you Frank think uh, the Martian Manhunter is by? <laughs> wow, I think if we talk about him enough, Frank will come back and, and give us his thoughts. Yeah, what can we say about the Martian Manhunter? Well, we we're sorry for Frank's absence, but uh, hey, he's being honest. He didn't. This didn't do it for him, so he's moving on. It's okay. Uh, I, I think I will buy the uh, Night Force collection for him just as a gift. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Irredeemable Shag said, Loved the PJ Frightful intro story. I don't have the soul of a writer, so I'm always amazed when someone I know personally can craft a tale that creates atmosphere such as this. Great job. Uh, well, I will thank PJ Frightful the next time I talk to him. Um, and I do have the soul of a writer. It's in a little jar that I, I keep on my desk. <laughs> Uh, Shag said, really enjoyed hearing Ryan and Paul chat. Life is always better with Paul around. Not a lot for me to say on the comics, but I am excited for the next episode. I picked up Night Force number three in a quarter bin over the summer. I'm going to read along. It'll be the first issue of the series I've ever read. Uh, That's nice of him to say, but uh, I just want to point out he's never had me on a podcast that he is on. (laughs) It's easy to send compliments your way, but, you know, you know. (laughs) 
show do the actual work shag show like demonstrate your love for paul don't just you know say that in the comments <laughs> uh we got we got a long and detailed comment from scott x <laughs> i love this one scott says georgetown university in the dc universe must have the most lax research institutional review board ever Kane is conducting experiments that involve, as you guys said, naked ritual seances to summon the devil, using fire, no less. Pretty sure that wouldn't pass the muster with the three research institutions I am affiliated with. Of course, he could be doing these experiments on the sly with government funding and the university not being aware or turning a blind eye. After killing off a number of tuition-paying graduate students, not to mention his wife, burning down a building, and opening the door to a multitude of lawsuits, I would think the university would revisit its stance on Kane's work. Maybe we'll find out in the op- in the upcoming issues. Yeah, I, I don't. I think that plot gets dropped. Uh, Scott said, and although Kane seems to have some interesting personal style, he has demonstrated that he is a terrible researcher. However crazy his research project is, he should have a plan. He is researching the mystical power of evil for Pete's sake. But instead, in the middle of an ongoing project, he throws in Vanessa, an uncontrolled variable that he made no allowances for. Gosh, how could anything go wrong? All of this obviously moves the plot forward, but my ability to suspend disbelief here is severely shaken. I don't have much trouble accepting far-out things in a fictional story that I know to be fictional and that do not exist in the real world, houses with time portals and seemingly immortal people, for instance, but I do expect writers to keep everyday real-world things a little more consistent with what I expect to find in the real world. All Wolfman had to do here was present Kane as an independent researcher, using graduate students as interns and working out of a privately funded facility to make this far more acceptable to my sensibilities. Then all I am left with is Kane being a terrible researcher, which is not hard to believe as there are certainly plenty of those in the real world. I really think Wolfman is a great writer, but for me, he really missed the boat here. Others may not have the same issues I do related to this story, but I guess I am influenced by my experiences. No, that doesn't mean I have participated in any fire-fueled naked ritual seances to summon the devil. Uh, and and Martin Gray just told Scott to admit the truth that he has partaken in those rituals and that demonic smoke doodles were gathering in the ground. <laughs> oh I mean, it would be interesting to see Marv Wolfen rewrite this story today. Like, with more knowledge for context for the research, or just like with, uh, I don't know, I guess the, the X factor for all of that is just sort of like the fact that the government and the Pentagon is involved. I kind of feel like that can explain away the problems in this. It's like, like if the university board comes down on Kane, it's like, talk to the, you know, the secretary of defense. He's the one in charge of all of this. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's all in the name of, uh, you know, science, <laughs> national security, <laughs> military yeah. power or something. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, Martin said, and this referred to we, in some of those early issues, we mentioned that there were like these weird little smoky demon faces that appear around Jack in like two different scenes, and we weren't sure if those were supposed to be there, if they were supposed to clue us into something. Martin said, I reckon they're just atmospheric visuals for the reader, not there to be seen by Jack. I mean, they don't come yeah. back. We never get any explanation. They're not revisited again, so maybe? Yeah, it's, it's the menace that's all around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the final comment for that episode, Bradley Null said, as much as I love the comic discussing part, the opening stories rock. Well, thank you very much again for that one. 
Um, mm. Moving on to the comments that we received after we covered issues three and four. Ange came back and said, that regret Jack feels for sleeping with Vanessa is only going to get worse. Can't wait to get to the end of this arc. Well, by now you know that Jack did feel a lot more regret and that things did get worse. Um, and Ange certainly uh, had a part in helping us cover the end of this story arc. Mm. Uh, Rob Kelly said, as I mentioned on the previous episode, Night Force 4 is a beloved comic from my childhood. I remember sitting in the back of my parents' car, reading it as they stopped for candles or whatever crap adults buy. (laughs) I love the cover. I think the almost neon magenta really makes it stand out. And as my nemesis Paul referenced, I thought you had a silky smooth voice. Now you're all of a sudden his nemesis. Uh, as Paul referenced, the shadows over the bad guy's face leaves it up to the reviewer's imagination. I also loved Colin's use of the color holds on the inside, giving the whole sequence a surreal, dreamlike quality. Oh, that's some Cubit Art School assessment right there. <laughs> like 70s Spectre Run in Adventure Comics, Rob says, I somehow think this series will be more fun for me to reread in the original comics, cheap paper and all, as opposed to some super clean, pristine collection. Like I need to do with Starman for Supermates podcast, I will start buying these books to catch up on the show. That's an interesting point. And again, like I want them to release the the collection around Halloween time that's been solicited. I'm gonna get it. I will be interested to see how the colors are are changed or played up if it's done on like a, a new kind of paper quality or paper stock. Yeah, if they clean anything up, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Too. yeah. Chris Franklin said, This book is far different than I ever guessed. I can totally see this as a Netflix-type series. You could even do it, period, like Stranger Things. Combined with Penny Dreadful and the Americans, and there you go. Yeah, I was thinking, like, some of this just feels so 1980s that if you adapted it, would it work in that context? Um, I don't know. I think the period thing would allow you to... uh have more of the flow of the story without the, you know, uh, modern telecommunications and yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's easier to have things uh, go wrong when people are isolated from each other. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if Baron Winters works in a world that has social media. Like, just... <laughs> Merlin handies, handles his Twitter account for him. <laughs> uh, Merlin posts a lot of cat videos. Martin Gray said, These episodes have me missing the series hugely. So much untapped potential. Agreed. Uh, And the final comment from Abel Mavada, who said, Good show, gents. I really enjoy the comic so far, and I enjoy hearing you both point out some of the things I missed. While you both make some valid criticisms of the book, I find that my inner critic takes a short vacation while I'm reading the story. That only really happens if what I'm reading, watching, or listening to is fun enough that I can just roll with it. Also, Night Force has so many elements of other things that I've enjoyed. The Mission Impossible TV show, James Bond movies, 70s Hammer horror films, Frederick Forsyth novels, Kolchak the Night Stalker. Even the Baron's relationship to Merlin reminds me of Gary Seven and his cat in that one Star Trek episode. Now, if Terry Gar shows up as the Baron's new mod secretary, I'm pretty sure she'll turn out to be working for the mysterious villain, just like every other secretary in this comic. Okay, then. It seems I have one criticism. Night Force has made me suspicious of secretaries that can't be good (laughs) (laughs) it's very true um it's funny though i mean like he says that you know his inner critic takes a short vacation while he's reading a story i mean that's the case with me but when you podcast about something you have to talk about it and think about it a bit more than just ah, this was in the story and i enjoyed it (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. You don't have the luxury to just say, I enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. Next. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's <laughs> going to make for kind of a crappy show, um, or a short show at least. Um, so, yeah, once, once you do, when you have to really break something down, you have to kind of uh, examine the faults and the, the things. And like I said, we, we pick things apart. We criticize the story. Overall, though, I still really liked it. I mean, this is, I wanted to do a podcast on this series. I really enjoy it. I, I think there is value to discussing this, this series. So, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll find some problems with that. We'll find, I can find problems in my favorite comic ever written, but I, it, it doesn't really sap my enjoyment of it. I still love it, and I still want to talk about it. So, yeah. Yeah, and I really appreciate you having me on for this because, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, I, we, I, I definitely, after Secret Origins, there were so many people I wanted to have more projects with, with you and with, unfortunately, Doug Zavisha, and that only lasted the one episode because I had to drop Dead Man from this. But Doug has a standing invitation to work with me on whatever he wants to. We will, we will collaborate again in the future, assuming I ever do another podcast after July when the baby is born. But. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big question, so. Uh, hopefully, uh, we, you and I are going to have to wrap the series up before then, so I think we can do it in just two more episodes. We can get to the end of Night Force, uh, and I'll be looking forward to that. But until then, Paul, where else can you be found in the podcast verse for people who, uh, uh, while they are waiting for more Night Force? Well, I'm still waiting for Doom. Uh, that's the Doom Patrol <laughs> podcast that I'm part of. Um, so breaks between uh, Volume Six issues at the moment, but uh, yeah, we're we're heading towards uh, Episode 100. So, and we'll also be part of the uh, JL May crossover, which will probably be out around the time this episode comes out, or shortly after. Apart from that, I'm on Twitter at reading underscore hix or hicks. And, yeah, I float around on the fire and water message boards and uh, I pop up here and there. All right. Well, until we talk again, covering the next story arc in the series. So thank you again. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight podcasting hour you can find ryan on twitter at ryan daily zero one or send him an email at our daily podcast at gmail.com midnight the podcasting hour is not affiliated with dc comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker music for this podcast is produced by neil daly any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.
rivers of tears still flow A taste of ecstasy Feel alive, in you the sun will 